0: warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is history against the great. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner.
1: Because we need a people. Episode 8, Living with History. This episode is dedicated to the life and memory of Ahmaud Arbery. Hey, Chris. How you doing?
0: Good morning, Josh. I just uh, realized I had to fly over this morning. uh, Some military jets, apparently, to cheer up everyone in this age of coronavirus, I guess. Does that make sense? Flew right over the top of our home.
1: There's, there's There's a whole probably 15 minutes we could do on... Military flyovers, but we can put that off for now. So I, I got to uh, shout out some people. First of all, my Asian history class, who have been such a delight to meet with this semester, particularly after the uh, everything shut down. It's always been a, it's been a joy every week getting to talk to those guys. So uh, we got some. I got some listeners. We got some listeners from that group. And so Asian history class, you guys mean a lot to me. And uh, big ups. Keep keep thinking about history. Indeed. The other day. I wake up, you wake up earlier than me. This is something we found out over the course of this. So I'll often wake up and I already am greeted by a text message that I have to scroll down multiple times to, to finish, but I think it was maybe Friday morning, maybe Thursday morning. I woke up and you had sent me a link to a New York Times article and I saw the title, Pandemics of the Past, and I know oh, this sounds interesting. And I scrolled down a little further and who should be staring me in the face but our old pal, John Meacham. I'm starting to think that that you, our colleague Ed, did this the other day as well, know that you can kind of set me off on these spirals of whatever. And so that one, it's It's too easy. My students know they can do that as well. So that one set me off on a spiral. And so for this week's Beefy with Meacham, I do want to talk a little bit about his piece Pandemics of the Past, which was in the New York Times. I've read, I've listened to too much Meacham. This 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 whole segment is maybe misguided because instead of ignoring this guy, I'm now deeply entrenched in everything he thinks uh, and, and talks about. But the thing that stood out to me at first, so you read the first paragraph and he's referencing this book, A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century by a uh, historian named Barbara Tuckman. No insult to Barbara Tuckman; She's a, a fabulous writer. I know a lot of people who, she was their entry into history because she's has such skill weaving a narrative and telling these historical stories. But he's basing a lot of this piece on pandemics of the past on her book, A Distant Mirror, as I said, a book which was published in 1978. So 42 years ago is where he's going to for his his source on the plague, which is what A Distant Mirror was about. I decided to put some work in. And so I looked up Barbara Tuchman. I looked up the book. I read contemporary reviews. And found one review that uh, was kind of mostly positive about it. I talked about what a great writer she is. But also noted that the book was outdated and old-fashioned in 1978. And here we have J.M. referencing her as his main source, by the way, in the year of our Lord 2020. And what I realized is that by looking up that, that review, reading that review, highlighting stuff, I may have done more work than he did in actually putting together the piece in the first place. And that's when you realize how far down the spiral you've gone when you're doing more work to shit on a piece than the person himself did to create the piece. But I don't want to just spend time talking about John Meacham because what eventually the place I eventually got to in, in thinking about this lazy piece of writing in the New York times was another issue. That's, that's very us right now. And that is the, um, financial impact of our current pandemic. The financial issues are starting to hit home now because budgets are in perilous circumstances. And as we teach at a public college, that's beginning to impact classes we can teach, the number of classes we can teach. And in particular, it's now impacting our colleagues who are part-timers, adjuncts as the term is, who are finding themselves in particularly precarious circumstances because the classes that they need for their livelihood, often they need for their health insurance, are being cut and they're being left to twist in the wind to a large degree. And so I'm reading John Meacham. I'm reading this, this piece in the New York Times, the paper of record. And he's putting in a good 15, 16 minutes in writing this piece. And I think of our colleagues, our adjunct colleagues, who uh, don't know what lies ahead in the future, don't know where their income's going to come from, don't know where their health insurance is going to come from. And as I just do a little mental note of, of all these dedicated people who who work in our department and who teach our classes and that, that sort of thing, and I could think of a good half dozen to a dozen who, if you had given the assignment of writing about pandemics of the past, of trying to put into historical context our current circumstances, would have done a million times better than John Meacham did. And uh made me sad. I'll just say it made, made me sad thinking about, about this, about the way that um, prestige works in this country, who gets their voice heard, who doesn't get their voice heard. Um, And so I just wanted to uh, raise that issue and and encourage everybody to to think about whose livelihoods are are, are really being tested in in our current times. Uh, Me and you are lucky enough to have relatively secure jobs, lucky enough to be able to work from home, uh, but for so many people now, that's just not the case. And so I just wanted to take a moment and, and think about people who are being left bereft really uh, as a result of our current circumstances.
0: Well, oh, here, here, here. You know, we've spent a lot of time recent days talking about how to support our colleagues, and uh, I suppose even where the writing of history is, is concerned, the, the curse of celebrity sometimes bestowed on those perhaps undeserving to be the voice of some particular past, and and we're going to talk a lot about that today about how we tell stories and and live with the histories uh, that we tell.
1: Yeah, and that brings us to an, another thing that was printed in the New York Times. This one was not lazy. This one was immensely impactful, but has also received, we'll just say, a mixed response. And that is the 1619 Project that uh, was first published in the New York Times in uh, in the year 2019 and has received a lot of plaudits, including, as you uh, noted last week, a Pulitzer Prize for Commentary, but also has received a lot of criticism.
0: Yeah, and we're going to spend a little time here uh, doing a bit uh, of a a deeper dive into 1619 and it's it's hard to tell partly because of the sort of celebrity driven nature of our even our news cycle you know uh, just what the full response to 1619 has been because all it takes is for some you know historian with a reputation who's, who's got a bone to pick to throw a letter you know at the times or some other publication and, uh, and maybe it's an outsized sort of representation of something but it, it's hard to tell but as you point out certainly the formal plaudits uh, the pulitzer prize etc have been forthcoming and i want to try to get past that kind of uh, ceremonial recognition of of things uh, to talk a bit more about the project itself and what it had to say and why that seemed to create a certain amount of blowback uh, let me read josh here from the I'll call the frontispiece of the 1619 Project uh, of the New York Times Magazine. And you can find this just by getting on the Times website or Googling 1619 Project. But uh, it read that the 1619 Project began with the publication in August 2019 of a special issue of the New York Times Magazine containing essays on different aspects of contemporary American life, from mass incarceration to rush hour traffic that have their roots in slavery and its aftermath. Each essay takes up a modern phenomenon familiar to all and reveals its history, close quote. Now, right away, one realizes upon encountering the 1619 Project that the, that the writing featured is itself bold and, and uncompromising. You know, even the title featuring the year 1619, calls the fateful but maybe generally forgotten year in American history when the first enslaved Africans arrived in Virginia and and what would later be the United States. Another piece uh, invited readers to quote read our essay on why American schools can't teach slavery right. According to the writer Nikita Stewart, the miseducation of children generally begins much earlier. Teachers bungle history as soon as children are learning to read because teachers and parents, she says, are often so afraid to frighten their children that they awkwardly spin the history of this country. Uh, and as Ms. Stewart further suggests, we are committing what she calls educational malpractice by not teaching slavery correctly uh, in the schools. And so yeah, right, right you know, Close to the surface of the 1619 Project, uh, you can't help but feel the sense of urgency, uh, the the boldness of the the writing uh, to tell what uh, the authors believe is an essential story. And I, I you know, I think uh, by and large, what I'm going to suggest in our podcast today is that this is absolutely a story that had to be told. You know, I mean, you were talking about 1978. I'm, I hope you weren't implying that that's so far in the past that I wasn't alive then, were you?
1: I think that's deep history. Isn't that called deep history now?
0: <laughs> Not quite ancient. Right. Antiquity, uh, though. But, uh, that's certainly antiquity. <laughs> I remember in the late 70s how ABC had produced a uh, miniseries called Roots based on the Alex Haley story of his own uh, researches into family history. Uh, and Roots held the country spellbound. It told the story—a story of American his, history uh, built around slavery—and it really held the country spellbound. And for a while, it was all the buzz, you know, when people were talking about it. But it, it, it sort of just disappeared, you know. And not really until 1619 uh, would I say that the country has come even close since then, having anything like a national conversation about slavery in the American past. And in fact, accordingly, the 1619 Project proclaims that it, quote, aims to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contribution of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. And so to the extent I would say that it's doing that, even if not quite with the stellar ratings that Roots did back in the 70s, uh, that it's, it's a healthy sign that America is turning you know, toward this chapter of its past weeks, Typically, you know, we're terrible at at talking about this as a country. I was, as you know, I went to South Africa a few years ago, and I was so taken with how comfortable South Africans were, white, uh, black, colored South Africans were, with discussing apartheid, for example. I mean, they had different views and different stories. But unlike Americans, you know, when we attempt to talk about these things, it seems to get stuck right in our throat. You know, we can't quite get it uh, out right and it gets very emotional very quickly. You know, the overall effect of the, I would say of the 1619 Project is, is certainly dramatic and, and troubling, but it, but it presents this history, I think, in, in clear and distinct tones. It features written essays dealing with slavery's past and its destructive legacy for our own present day. So, you know, tough subjects, but along with original poetry, speaking to the, the pain and the pathos of those living descendants of enslavement. And, and photographs, both historical and, and modern, which capture slavery's uh, bitter, but sometimes hidden or forgotten legacy. And, and even, you're happy to know, of course, a companion podcast, which as soon as folks listen to History Against the and they can go over to listen to the 1619 podcast. So I think I wanna commend the writers for initiating this conversation in such clear and bold, but in my sense, historically accurate ways. Before even the Pulitzer was awarded, the project nevertheless had received a certain amount of blowback, as you suggested, critical blowback from its debut last August. Uh, you know, from those claiming uh, it committed one or more historical sins. Uh, whether factual misrepresentation, or interpretive overreach, or both. Perhaps best known uh, was a letter sent to the New York Times and signed by five historians, uh, historians well known within the the academy, within the discipline of history, and even even generally for uh, their work, uh, often what had been pioneering work in American history. Four of them now retired, all of them white, objected to what, one of the letter writers called the cynicism of the 1619 Project and telling the story of what, by the way, they kept referring in their letter to our history, our history. And they decry certain unspecified factual errors in the 1619 Project and lament what they call the closed process behind it. Not sure what that means, Josh. Apparently they feel maybe what, they should have been consulted or
1: I, I don't see another way to read it, right? That their voices weren't getting heard. And that's the real crime of, of this project was who was telling the story and who wasn't telling the story. You know, I don't want to suggest it's all professional jealousy, but there really seems to be a little territorial pissing going on about who can tell the story. And, you know, as you noted, the, the fact that the letter writers or the signatories at least were, were all white and the, uh, the, the creator of the project is an African-American woman creates, uh, picture that's not particularly pretty it's a bad optic it's a bad optic that's the term I was looking for and you know so Sean Willens the, the the professor from uh, Princeton I believe yes is the the letter writer he got people to sign it and to me one of the most alarming parts of it is he makes this case at one point he says I'm, I'm not here to destroy the project I'm here to fix it and to me that just it, it's so patronizing again for this very well-known historian and to take and use his power to kind of speak down to this younger African-American woman who had produced this incredible project, I urge all of you who haven't read it, go read uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones' opening essay for the piece because it's, it's beautiful. That's the one that, that I believe won the Pulitzer. It's beautiful, it makes you think, it makes you question. There's quote after quote that you just wanna pull out and read over and over again. Um, and, and to have this reaction with the optics of that reaction, what is really distressing, I would say, uh, because it does suggest that, you know, what conversations we're allowed to have are, are always bounded by this this ceiling about who can talk, uh, who can say certain things, who can't say certain things, but also just about what we're allowed to say about America and what we're not allowed to say about America, what will get a reaction, won't what won't get a reaction, and, and the letter and the the general reaction, it uh, you know really highlighted these issues, I think.
0: No, I completely agree. I mean, it's well said. I, I think, you know, at the very baseline, it gets down to who gets to tell the story and, you know, which story. Uh, in, in, in the letter that we mentioned, um, uh, they say, for example, uh, one of their more specific criticisms of the 1619 and, and and the essay in question, quote, on the American Revolution, Pivotal to any account of our history, the project asserts, meaning the 1619 project, asserts that the founders declared the colonies independence of Britain, quote, in order to ensure slavery would continue. This is not true, say the letter writers. If supportable, the allegation would be astounding. Yet every statement offered by the project to validate it is false. And I have to tell you, I mean, that's, that's a serious and damning uh, accusation of truth to say that every statement offered by the project to validate it is false. And I have to tell you, as one who earned a Ph.D. in American history and whose research field was early American history, I can, I can tell you that that is just absolute baloney, uh, the assertion there and yet other critics have been even more disparaging at times i would say almost hysterical wouldn't you or at least shrill
1: yeah definitely and you know a lot of them are the the people you'd expect uh you know writers in the national review writers in the federalist uh writers in in various conservative um you know newspapers and 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 journals and websites and this sort of thing who seem to really see this as an attack on america that needs to be defended right this is they're they're not in the military. They don't have the chance to defend America on the battlefield or anything like that. So they see it as their position to defend it in the pages of these uh, newspapers and these these journals and in on these websites. Truly brave of them, by the way. Um, thank you for your service, brave conservative commentators of, of the United States.
0: Well, you know, one of them, uh, a historian by the name of Alan Gulzo, uh, who uh, was among, the, I would say, the more shrill critics Uh, Referred to what he said were the follies of the 1619 Project and accused Miss Anna Jones of flinging Accusations before magnanimously conceding himself that well, yes, America's history has not been perfect So yeah, moral courage. You're right, Josh Look, I would suggest that it is almost impossible to engage with the 1619 Project any sort of emotionally neutral way Given the unusual and maybe unprecedented degree of emotionally charged blowback against Miss Hannah Jones, it seems necessary to ask, what's what's going on here? Because as in the words of the old Buffalo Springfield song, something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. So yeah, that's what we're trying to do on History Gets It Granted is try to to clarify what this issue is really about and explain, yeah, you know, what's going on? Why has a well informed and exceptionally well written and edited project of journalism and history inspired so much heat? And I think, and I want to suggest, that important clue sits in the form of a single word rather innocuously positioned amidst the more high profile rhetoric. And the word, would be perfect or a four-letter word, but it's a five-letter word, and the word is story, as in, quote, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully, as Miss Nicole Anna Jones has written. In that little word story, I think we find the crucible of all this fire and all this heat. Much of the gravitas and emotion inspired by the 1619 Project arises from our human-centric adherence to stories. I say human-centric because I have no evidence that other species beside our own tell stories. And as we sometimes say, man is the storytelling animal. And the stories we tell and the stories we learn from the time we are children become the totems of the lives we go on to live. And, and even before we die, it's said, our lives can, quote, flash before our eyes like a movie reel story. Uh, Stories, in other words, are tightly woven into our very identities as people, our frames of reference, our values, our fears, even our dreams. And they are the stories of our lives, of our families. They are in personal experience and recollection. They are in the fairy tales and folk tales we learn, the movies we watch, the books we read, and, Clearly, included in this list of our story made selves are the stories of the past, the stories of history. I bet you've told a story or two in your day, haven't you?
1: Love it. Yeah. I criticize narrative as a, as a device in so many cases, but it is, it's is—it's so powerful and there's way things you can get across in a, nar- in a narrative that you could never get across in some other delivery device. And I, I lo- love what you said that that these stories are built into people's identity. And it, it does go a long way to explaining why the reactions are what they are, because I think for some people, the sense is that if we take away these stories, then, then what do we have left? This is uh, a, a powerful thing, and it's a thing we've seen throughout history. I, I talk a lot about in uh, world history, there's a period in the like 1890s to the early two th- uh, early 20th century where in a lot of the non-Western world, which is obviously the rest of the world, you're getting to a point in time where societies in like China and Japan and Vietnam and, and, you know, kind of across the world are, are coming to realize that resistance to Western imperialism is not gonna work within a traditional narrative, right? That, that you know, in China, uh, reverting back to this imperial system and this Confucian orthodoxy or however you wanna present it, no longer seems as viable as it once did. And so there's increasing realization that, you know, the stories of the past, the identities of the past, don't work anymore, but the big question then becomes, what's gonna replace it? Uh, there's a, a, this young Japanese writer in the 1880s, early 1890s maybe, who says basically, um, it's, as, it's as if we're wandering in a fog now that we've realized that the old ideas don't, don't work any longer. And that sense of dislocation, that sense of being untethered is, is powerful and it's, it's scary and, and that sort of thing. And I, I, I get why people react this way, but we're not living in the 1890s. We're not living in a society that that is um, bereft of stories. There's plenty of stories we can tell, and I, I would I would suggest that the stories being told in the 1619 Project are compelling, and they're worth listening to, um, and they're worth asking questions about. And that's something you're going to get into as we get into the interview portion.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would I would only add to your statement. You know that I'd I'd like to suggest you know, taking it one step further, that the critics of the 1619 are generally flat wrong in, in their critique, because what they're really arguing about isn't the, the facts of history, they're, they're arguing about the story, about the narrative, and, you know, we're doing our level best, and we'll continue to on History Against the Grain, and it's almost a moral obligation for us to do so, and that is to to offer an alternative, you know, it's easy to tear something down, which is what the critics of 1619 claim they're doing that is the authors of the project are doing, uh, but, you know, to, to build another story in its place. Uh, we're not going to shrink away from that. You know, I, I've found the sixty nine nineteen Project to be neither riddled with factual errors or interpretive overreach, and even the clarification uh, made to a single sentence in Miss Hannah Jones's essay, a point concerning the centrality of slavery to the American Revolution, I thought, In my mind, it was unnecessary, but the editors went ahead and did it. The editor-in-chief of the Times, Jake Silverstein wrote, we recognize that our original language could be read to suggest that protecting slavery was a primary motivation for all of the colonists. The passage has been changed to make clear that this was a primary motivation for some of the colonists. So take your pick, Josh, some or all. You know, this is what it's getting down to. Of course, Miss Anna Jones had never said all the colonists had fought to protect slavery. I mean, why would she have? Since all would have necessarily included the 500,000 enslaved men and women living in the colonies. And why would they have fought to protect slavery? You know, so for her critics, especially veteran historians who know better, to imply that she had somehow meant all betrays, to me, more than a little bad faith so yeah what's uh what's going on here well again i think to answer the question we have to consider a truth that we often discuss on history against the grain that how we remember the story of the past is never a simple matter of memorizing a few facts and dates because the histories we learn first as kids from our teachers in school are never as simple as that no as as far as popular you know it's popular to claim that all you had in high school history was to memorize a bunch of dates or regurgitate a bunch of facts you know that that's not that's not really true the reality is that we learned stories now stories of Christopher Columbus discovering America stories of the pilgrims and religious freedom and thanksgiving stories of the patriots and the minutemen and the give me liberty or give me death stories Stories of Thomas Edison in the light bulb and America's inventive spirit. Stories of all we have to fear is fear itself and bravely joining together to overcome a great depression I think that was John Meacham's take. And stories of one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind that teaches the boundlessness of the American dream. And so even when the story of slavery comes into view in the national narrative, it does so just in the nick of time to congratulate Abraham Lincoln for freeing the slaves. And thus somehow slavery becomes a story of American freedom. But You know, in a strange and revealing way, even when we forget the facts, you know, was it Alan Shepard or Neil Armstrong who said one small step for man, or who the hell was it anyway? Or, you know, even if we've never heard the story of the moon landing at all, we somehow remember the moral of the story, the lesson it imparts of what it means to be an American. And that moral is reinforced in the rituals we perform in honors of it rising for the national anthem, the reciting the Pledge of Allegiance, even the lighting of sparklers on the 4th of July, and hell, just for good measure, throwing the Super Bowl. These are like the disembodied ghosts of those stories from our nation's past that become enshrined in our identities, born from the official storytelling narrative of the national history. Uh, the authorized biography, you might say, of the United States states of America. And to me, Josh, that that is the sin that Nicole Hannah-Jones and the writers and photographers and poets of the 1619 Project have committed in the eyes of the critics, including not just the right-wingers who make so much political capital of wrapping themselves in the flag, but also those liberal progressive American historians whose lives and careers have been spent tending the gardens of American history and of finding in that garden of national history a more expansive and, they believe, more redemptive story of an American nation, a nation however conflicted in the past, however complicated and even contradictory the story of freedom was, it's fundamentally, nevertheless, a story of progression and expansion of liberty. We might say, I think they are the true believers in the storyline so well encapsulated in that often quoted but misappropriated therefore misquoted line wrongly attributed to Martin Luther King about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In other words, that somehow American history is after all moving in the right direction. And again, what the 1619 Project has dared to suggest is that American history isn't moving in the right direction. Look, some will decry this, uh, certainly, as they have the 1619 Project, as a shame and blame approach to American history, but nothing could be further from the truth by taking the blinders, and as we say, borders off American history. We free ourselves to see the story in its fullness, in its geographic fullness, in the clear light of day. We liberate ourselves from the prison of American exceptionalism, a false story badly told to see ourselves and our global neighbors as part of the same big story of shared striving. And you're gonna talk about that after our next segment. But uh, speaking of that segment, on today's episode of History Against the Grain, we're happy to have a couple of guests whose jobs put them on the front lines of telling America's history. They're public school teachers who confront the enormous challenge of making American history relevant, real to high school kids. For all the ways that history seems uh, to get through the cracks into the public consciousness, you know, whether library books sitting on shelves, or an algorithm on the Amazon book order, or a digital archive online, or even a Hollywood movie, you know, I think you could have made a, a good case that our nation's public school teachers collectively have a greater share of direct transmission of history via their work in educating the millions and thus a bigger audience than perhaps any other uh, single source. And I can tell you, Josh, that the hissy fit thrown by critics at the 1619 project is due in no small part to the fact that the New York Times has bundled all the writings and sources and ancillary materials of the project and made it available to schools and teachers for use, which, uh, again, is why we are so happy today to have with us on History against the grain, two honest to goodness frontline educators.
2: Talk
0: to me. We are happy to have Elise Robinson and Kyle Fitzpatrick join us today on History Against the Grain, as we discuss the 1619 Project. They are both veteran high school educators and social studies teachers who have used materials from that project in their teaching. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about them by way of introduction. First up, Elise. Elise earned her degree at the University of California, San Diego, with a major in history, and a minor in sociology. She then uh, went on to finish her teaching credential and earn a master's degree from National University. For the last 10 years, she has taught at Cupertino High School here in California, courses on government, economics, college prep, US history, and has also taught in the AVID program, a program targeting students who will be the first in their families to attend college. Elise has also participated in the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Kyle is a colleague of Elise's at Cupertino High School. He earned his college degree from the University of Southern California, where he double majored in history and geography. He earned his social studies credential from Long Beach State University. For the past 15 years or so, he has been teaching college prep government and economics, along with U.S. History at Cupertino High School, and along with Elise, teaches in the AVID program. So Elise and Kyle, welcome to History Against the Grain. Yeah, thank you, glad to be here.
2: Thank you, I'm happy to be here today.
0: Well, I'm quite delighted uh, as well that you're both here. Uh, As you both know, uh, the 1619 Project has again been in the news in recent days since its principal author, New York Times reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones, was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for commentary uh, for her introductory essay to the 1619 Project. So yeah, let's get right into it. Kyle, you and I have talked a bit about some of the ideas the 1619 Project brought forth in uh, particular related to slavery and the Constitution, uh, recalling that you teach US government. Uh, in fact, let me read a quote from Ms. hannah Jones's lead essay to the project. She writes, the Constitution contains 84 clauses. Six deal directly with the enslaved and their enslavement. As the historian David Waldstreicher has written, uh, five more hold implications for slavery. Those five more clauses in the constitution. The constitution protected the property of those enslaved black people, prohibited the federal government from intervening to end the importation of enslaved Africans for a term of 20 years, allowed Congress to mobilize the militia to put down insurrections by the enslaved, and four states that had outlawed slavery to turn over enslaved people who had run away seeking refuge, close quote. So my question to you, Kyle, is why did you decide to include materials from this project in your senior Gov and Econ
3: class? And you know, how'd it go? Yeah, so uh, the primary focus for the class or like any subject, right, is using it as a vehicle to expand skills and teach critical thinking. Uh, and this project really afforded us the opportunity to do that. So, when we talk skills, we're talking about writing, inquiry, collaboration, and reading. And so, the 1619 project, right, it did a couple of things, right? It looked for and challenged the students' prior knowledge. So, I wanted to see what they were coming into class with. We used it at the beginning of the government class. And then um, I also wanted them to expand their understanding of the past, right? So that way, uh, we can, The students would come in with lots of questions, lots of, hopefully lots of uh, curiosity about the 1619 Project. We put them in groups so that they could collaborate and bounce ideas off one another um, and that they could take this concept of if the government is what sets the policy, if government is um, the ship, right, is they're the ones kind of running the ship in what directions, then any policy they make, right, really transform the direction of that ship. And so if we go back to the Constitution and we look at, right, the impact that slavery had on the original document, that's going to impact the direction of that ship.
0: Yeah, I like that, um, you know, that metaphor. uh, Sometimes we say the ship of state uh, as if it goes by itself, but it doesn't. And what you're saying is that you want students to understand how these mechanisms actually drive that.
3: Yeah, correct.
0: That ship. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to come back in a second to then how your students actually responded to this. Um, but I want to mention at least you, you used another piece from the 1619 Project in your senior government economics class, particularly on the econ side. The, the piece uh, written by the Princeton uh, sociologist Matthew Desmond. Uh, Desmond wrote a piece for the 1619 Project on slavery uh, and capitalism. And Desmond's piece. Outlines the central influences, I guess you would say, that the history of enslavement had on the development of capitalism in America. And I'll I'll quote briefly from his introduction uh, In order to understand the brutality of American capitalism, writes Desmond, you have to start on the plantation. So, Elise, let me ask you the same question I asked Kyle How did you come to include? the 1619 project in your econ class, and
2: uh, how was your experience teaching that material? I think one of the things that we were really thinking about is if we're really gonna take a look at the historical narrative, then we need to make sure that we're looking at it from different angles. And it's really easy to just kind of turn to the old school ways of thinking of the people that have kind of always looked the same, telling the same story, but it becomes a little more difficult you really have to start unpacking all that's there and if kids are going to be great question askers and agency for change then they need to be given that information and so Matthew's article resonated with me on a number of levels um, but mostly because it addressed one of the first questions we should be considering when we're talking about gov and econ is where did the birth of this so-called American exceptionalism idea come from and if we can't really focus on that and some of the truths behind it that have been emitted from the story, then where are we taking them and how are we teaching them? And so that's kind of some of the basics for why we felt like this was going to be a very powerful tool.
0: Yeah. It sounds like both of you were really wanting to get to the foundations of American government and economy. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah. And if they're going to have effective and accurate conversations to become more worldly citizens, that's our goal, right? They must be able to grapple with text that gives them a story that might not fit the social norm in a way where they might feel uncomfortable at times. Um, but that's okay because they can work through it and ask questions in a safe environment.
0: Yeah. Would you agree with that, Kyle?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, we have a lot of conversations in our team and Elise and I in particular about. Just again, really kind of, if we're going to want to make any sort of impactful change moving forward, we really have to understand what was going on in the past. And we have to be able to ask a lot of critical questions, um, not only about the history we were taught, but about any like anything and everything that we're kind of looking at as we move forward.
0: Yeah, you know, as we speak about your students, let me just add here that The student demographic at Cupertino High, where you both teach, is predominantly East Asian and South Asian and Indian. Many students being first or second generation Americans, and many living as they do in the heart of Silicon Valley. Look, the Apple World Headquarters is literally just down the street and around the corner a few blocks from your school, and many of them uh, aspire... To careers in in tech, so with that in mind, I would ask both of you: How do you how do you feel these stories influenced, or maybe clashed with, or otherwise informed uh, the worldview of your students? Either you know in U.S. history, or more broadly, their perspectives on the future, what we like to call the
3: American dream. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think the you know, I think some of the clashing. Uh, is the thing that kind of stands out, I think, for a lot of our students, uh, especially as you say, the first, second generational students, they come here with quite a bit of wealth. Uh, a lot of them were recipients of H-1B visas, right? A lot of their families came, right, with the dot-com boom of the 90s. Uh, and they they come with, a, you know, bringing a lot of their own kind of cultural and economic biases to the conversation and um, to... It, for lack of a better term, they, they kind of bring a lot of the, the capitalism, right? piece to it, the, the freedom, uh, piece to it, without necessarily understanding some of the historical narratives that we bring into the conversations.
0: How about you, Elise? Uh, what seemed to be that you know, critical connection for them uh, as you talked about these, uh, these, these challenging stories?
2: I think just to piggyback off of what Kyle said, it's kind of challenging old ideas that they really had about capitalism. And one of the things that we both really encourage in our classes is this idea of questioning things. And I always tell my students, you can have a perspective, but you just need to keep it respectful. And when we have that type of atmosphere, then kids will say things that they truly believe. And sometimes those things can be offensive or have some bias in it, in those moments, I call them showstoppers, that's where we really stop and we unpack kind of where those beliefs come from and how they can be hurtful. And so I think when we present them with these true stories or stories from different perspectives, if we don't wanna just call them true stories, then the students really get to see that there's more than one way that things really went down and it is okay to look at different ways to make sure that we all Understand a variety of perspectives, and I think that that helps them be agencies of change and even help their parents become more involved in the narrative.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm old enough to uh, remember when they used to call it critical thinking, and I'm sure that that, that phrase had undergone several reiterations over time. But in effect, uh, Kyle, you know, you pointed out at the beginning, you know, about skills. Uh, cognitive skills, reading skills, and that sort of thing. Uh, that these, should we call them, you know, ambitious stories? Uh, these counter narratives uh, certainly put upon the students the need to be able to think critically. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of that, like some of the best, like challenging questions I receive within class. Um, actually, have to do with a lot of the the students really questioning the curriculum in many regards, uh, and what that does is you're saying, right? Is that it's forcing these kids to think critically? So by them even, you know, being taking the risk and being able to kind of challenge, right, me and the curriculum or challenge it within their small group discussions, right? But it it really forces this greater conversation. That as teachers, we can kind of, as we're moving around the room doing these discussions, we can kind of tap into and try to develop a lot more of these thinking skills as we go through the curriculum. So I really like to challenge the kids on some of these, you know, newer—it's not newer narratives, I guess, or changing um, narratives—so that we can bring that to light, bring some of those critical thinking to light, and it really forces them to bring in evidence to defend themselves in their process.
0: Yeah, I think in some ways they are new narratives, at least at the point where you guys do your job. It's not that these stories, you know, were only recently discovered necessarily, but to the extent that they find their way into your curriculum uh, or into your classroom uh, in in such a way maybe as to challenge, you know, other more familiar narratives, I I think it's fair to call them new. Uh, And it it makes me think, you know, Elise, you you talked to me about uh, another uh, special project you you took on with the Equal Justice Initiative to develop a unit, and and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was in your U.S. history class on racial violence and lynching. Uh, And let me just add quickly here, by the way, uh, that among the Pulitzer Prize winners this year was a posthumous Pulitzer given to Ida Wells the great chronicler of lynching in this country. Uh, And uh, I noticed on the Equal Justice Initiative website, they have a piece currently running on Ida Wells. So we'll put that in our episode notes for folks who are interested. Uh, But what Wells uh, helped open up with her reporting was, you know, the full scope and scale of what was after all, a form of domestic terrorism, a, uh, a pattern of violence uh, against Black women and men uh, in the decades after the Civil War, but well into the 20th century. The numbers were not in the hundreds, but in the many thousands of those who were subjected to this cruel and, and barbarous Violence. So by, by any standard, to talk about the story of lynching, I'm sure for you at least, presented a, a number of different challenges, not the least of which being a woman of color yourself, uh, having to somehow mediate these tough stories for your students. Tell me how, tell,
2: tell me how you came to want to do that and how it went. Oh, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and one of the things that I really had to sit and think about was if we are really going to dissect this quote unquote long arc of history, we must address all of the voices and the story. And that includes the voices of the people who tend to be left out of the narrative. And so I just kept thinking, how can I make this topic that is such a difficult topic to discuss, a difficult topic to pick apart accessible to students without ever using images in a way that kind of re-victimizes the victims. And so, I was thinking about Maya Angelou and her quote history, despite its gut wrenching pain cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage need not be lived again. And so this idea of we can never avoid these difficult topics. And I do think I have a special, I'm going to call it a superpower. Um, <laughs> in that I am a black female teacher and I am the only black female teacher um, that teaches history in my entire district. Um, and so I'm, I kind of have this special place and I, um, I really was thinking, how can I bring this topic to the kids um, in a way that they can understand it but can continue conversations about it. And so in true teacher fashion, um, I was starting at the end and trying to backwards plan my way through. And thinking about where I got the students to at the end, um, they always ask, how do we let this happen? Or like, what in the world is going on? Is this real? And my response to them is, well, yes. And why do you think it happened? Um, And do you think it can happen again? And their response is always yes. And then my response back to them is, well, more importantly, what are you going to do about this to make sure it doesn't? And so kind of getting the kids to really examine things. And so we looked at the historical narrative as a whole. Um, I presented them with um, facts from the Equal Justice Initiative from the EJI on just basic lynching data. There was numbers. Um, it discussed different states, different regulations, um, and that I think in and of itself, presenting them with the actual data from the very beginning, help makes it a little more real. I think also having them look at videos on the EJI where they interviewed family members of people that had had persons lynched in their family. Um, and that automatically brought me to the point, I don't know if you all saw Black Klansmen, where, um. Mr. Belafonte recalls the lynching of, I believe his name is Jesse Washington, um, and he was a 17-year-old that was lynched in front of the courthouse. And so I knew how powerful these narratives could be without even using visuals, and I wanted to really make sure that I could get the kids to hear the stories and read the stories without actually having to see people. Um, I also had them take a look at the uh, lynching map. So there's a lynching map on the EJI and it details all of the counties in the United States, um, the number of lynchings that they've had on record or they've been able to find. And that part in and of itself really was a powerful moment for me because the county that I'm from in Southern Illinois has the highest number of lynchings on record for the state of Illinois. And so I think having that moment with the students and explaining that to them Um, and explaining how I was perplexed by it. And so I went and did some more research, found out some more things, talked with my family. They really were understanding that this history is a living history and it's a history that has to be discussed if we're going to have more conversations about it. And then of course, going to my girl, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who I just think is fabulous. And she is a fantastic example of agency, but not only agency, black female agency in a time where that's not really seen publicly. And I mean, she was really hurt by the lynching of her friend, and she took that story, and she was able to complete a whole campaign on anti-lynching and why it is essential if we are going to make sure we're moving forward. And I think she so shows this, and that helps the students see that if you see something, I mean, I don't want to take it to the terms that we use today, see something, say something, but if you see something that's not right, and you know it's not right in your soul, then you got to do something about that. And whether that's for, you know, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, Maybe that's for rights having to do with different racial issues or healthcare homelessness that if you know something doesn't add up, then it is on you to do something to say something, to have that piece of empathy because at the end of the day, that really is what's essential. These students should be leaving our room able to question and question from a place where they have empathy for another person's struggle.
0: yeah, and I was going to ask you both that and and you've already led me into it a little bit here is. Uh you know, we, we bring these, uh, these counter narratives or these, these tough subjects, you know, right to our classrooms. And, you know, there's a, there's a question, you know, that's sort of lurking there somewhere. And the question is, we do it because we want our students to blank, you know, in other words, um, and I, I don't mean just in terms of some academic outcome, you know, they can, take a standards test or, you know, write an essay or something, although that may be part of it. I'm thinking more about how each of you see it in terms of maybe their, you know, their, the, the arc of their lives. Uh, Do you, Kyle, I mean, do you, do you have a sense and I'm going to guess that you do because you're a teacher and we're nothing if not optimistic ultimately, but do you have a sense that this is going to make a difference in the lives of your students to, to confront these tough subjects and to think their way through them.
3: Yeah. I mean, like one of my big like goals, I guess, to actually see some true change, right? Uh, and hopefully I don't get too big on the sidebar here, but I, I actually put together a couple of weeks ago, this really big uh, letter that I sent to all my students, really hoping to impact, it, even if it was just a few, to for them to take this moment during the coronavirus, to realize that they have a little bit more time on their hands and that, their generation can do something about it, right? This whole, the moment that we were in even now really affords us an opportunity to make some real change, Um, but it takes action and it takes motivation and it takes energy. And, you know, if they can take something from our class, which is we've been really, you know, trying to get them to understand that we're living with history, but it doesn't mean that we're stuck with it. And so I really want, Um, The students that seize kind of the opportunity, right? Seize the day that they've been given, seize the time that we have to do something about some of this history that they feel um, is maybe doing harm or continuing to cause problems. Well, you know, I want to
0: acknowledge and uh, affirm what I see as the incredibly important and good work you're both doing Uh, In these areas. I mean anybody who's been listening to the podcast understands. I have some definite very definite ideas about How we teach uh, history how we teach US history uh, in particular. So let me uh, Let me read one more quote to you uh, And then ask you a a final question Uh, this comes from a report that the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, did on the teaching of slavery in American history uh, and one of those who uh, contributed to the report was the Yale uh, historian, David Blight. Uh, and here's what he had to say. He said, the biggest obstacle to teaching slavery effectively in America is the deep abiding American need to conceive of and understand our history as progress, as the story of a people and a nation that always sought the improvement of mankind, the advancement of liberty and justice, uh, the broadening of pursuits, of happiness for all. Uh, and he goes on to say, therefore, that when we teach these tough subjects, uh, we are in a, in a sense cutting against that grain, uh, that, that simple story. And so, you know, my, and I'm sure you've felt this as you've stood in the classroom or prepped your materials and, and put these uh, hard truths out there. Uh, so, uh, you know, I want to leave you with, with a question and have you leave us with your thoughts today, uh, as educators, maybe speaking to your colleagues or, or others who find themselves in the same position, you know, ultimately, where do you find the inspiration, you know, for taking on that challenge, for challenging, uh, that story? Uh, how do you, how do you square that, Elise?
2: I think David Blight's, Quote really leads you to the next question, and that is, What does progress look like, and for who? And I mean, that answer is definitely not the same um, for many people in this country. And the for who is really the essential part um, of the inquiry that has to happen, because then it forces you to seek out more information on why the definition of progress seems to differ so much depending on who you are, where you're from, or what you're all about. And so I think if we can get them to challenge this type of thinking, we can get them to challenge the narrative and work towards changing it as they build their lives and their own agency and, and society. And I mean, if we can get them started in high school, then when they get to college, they'll be able to have these tough conversations. And when they're adults and out in the world, they won't back down from them, but they will wanna engage in these things and see what's up. So if we start at Tino and give them these tools in a place where it's a safe space, there's no judgment, um, then they'll hopefully take it upon themselves to join conversations um, later on.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's a really good good point. You keep those conversations evolving, uh, Kyle. You know sometimes critics and there's no shortage of critics uh, of you know, whether it be the 1619 Project or or the Southern Poverty Law Center report or you know any number of things we might point to. One of the things they say about it is, well, you know you're teaching this and it's divisive. You know it doesn't. Those older stories, those stories are meant to bring us together. But these these stories, they divide us. Uh, is that how you feel about
3: them? No, not at all. It it actually really uh, drives me crazy when I hear that. Like even reading um, the Federalist uh, after Hannah Jones run, won the Pulitzer, t- said that it's just going to encourage schools to teach kids to hate America, right? Uh, comments like that, and comments like I, I get from some of the students, which I actually really appreciate when they ask why we're being so harsh on the United States. Uh, what I really want them to think about is like, you know, why is critical examination of and context considered harsh or hateful or divisive, right? To, to be critical of anything does not have to be, like have this negative connotation with it when we're really simply just trying to learn more for, from it, right? When are trying to get a deeper understanding. You know, I also in class, I, I say I go and back to the, the founders, right? That's what a lot of people like to go back is to the founders. And they obviously created a vital and transformative government, but they also knew it was flawed even in the preamble when they said a more perfect union, right? Just in that, you know, four words right then and there, they're, they're not saying it's perfect, right? They're saying even a more perfect union, meaning that they understood it, I would like to think, uh, the that they didn't have the answer, and therefore it required criticism and it required debate and it required discussion in order to continue to progress?
0: Well, I certainly want to thank you both. Uh, I tell you, you know, history finds its way through the cracks. You know, um, history is books sitting on sh- library shelves. It's, it's materials sitting in a digital archive somewhere. It's a, you know, it's a, a lecture some college professor may give to, you know, a few students, but, but really the front lines, you know, of, 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 of where history interfaces with our citizenry is where you ply your trade. It's it's there in the public schools, uh, you know, that that take on the burden of educating the masses, as, as it were. And so, uh, it was important for me to have you guys on and give you a chance to talk about some of these. I'm not sure it's going to be our last conversation, to tell you the truth. I think there's a lot of conversations to be had, but uh, you know, to the extent that we. Uh, know we can appeal to your colleagues and your peers and in teaching to take on the challenge of these sometimes tough stories or counter narratives for all the reasons you both spoke eloquently to today i think uh that it's a a work we have to undertake so yeah thank you both so much for coming on
2: thank you for having us
3: yeah thank you very much and thank you for what you're doing your podcasts are awesome
1: that was a fantastic interview chris elise and kyle were both I mean, I, I listening to it just fired me up about about education and, and what education can be because, you know, obviously there, there's these ideas about history as a collection of facts and, you know, students say I never could get into history because I didn't want to memorize all this stuff. But what they're talking about is something so much deeper than that. And, and by the way, something that's very brave because it's easy to, to do the old stories. It's easy to, you know, have students read the chapters from the book and, and take tests and that sort of thing. But what they're talking about is, is engaging with history in a very profound way. They both talked about, you know, that in using the 1619 Project, what they're trying to do is is get conversations going. And I, th- I think it was Kyle that said it towards the end that the ultimate goal is that these students are going to come out of this with this alternate story in their head and they're going to continue to think about it and they're going to continue to think about the greater meaning of it. And they're going to be people who are better positioned to have discussions and, and engage in debates and, and not just accept Whatever the dominant story is. And that's not gonna be everybody. That's not gonna be everybody in the classes. People are uh, stuck in their ways in many cases. They're gonna they're gonna push back against it. They're gonna try to keep that stuff out, but it's a starting point. Um, and if we can get teachers like Kyle and Elise to to have these discussions, which again I, I would I would stress not easy to do, and it does take courage and it does take hard work. But if we get those conversations going in our in our schools across the country, not just in Cupertino, California, but uh, it, it can make a difference, and it can make a difference for us, you know, as as community college instructors, because it means that our students are coming in with these ideas in their head, and with these questions in their head, and then we can further that, those discussions as we go. I want to highlight a couple things that uh, Elise and Kyle said. Kyle, first of all, but uh, he says we're living with history, but that doesn't mean we're stuck with it, and that gets right into to what you know, you were talking about uh, prior to the interview where these narratives come from, where these ideas come from. We're not stuck in any of this stuff. There are ways out, uh, but it does take that effort. And then Elise made this very profound statement about progress. She says, What does progress look like and for who? Um, you were talking about uh, before the interview that a big part of the vitriol that's been directed against the uh, 1619 project is it does get in the way of this this arc of the moral universe idea that there is this trajectory that history has, that American history has in particular, and that the 1619 Project is therefore a cynical attempt to wash away that story of progress and to develop this story that is divisive, as you mentioned in the, in the interview, or that is uh, is about hatred of America or something like that. But I think what Elise was talking about, I think what the 1619 Project does a really good job of is presenting a perspective that's different from the one that so many people in this country have, that's different from the one that so many of our textbooks get across, that so many of our instructors get across, that progress can make a lot of sense to people if you look a certain way, if your family history is is a particular way. But if you change your perspective just a little bit, you see something very different. That progress for some doesn't mean progress for all. And it is important to ask these questions about what this actually means when we say progress Um, And what it actually looks like, not just for individuals, but for the nation as a whole, for the country as a whole, for the world as a whole. Because once you start taking that broader view and you start looking around the world, you really do start seeing that it's far more complicated than um, just this idea of things improving as some kind of natural trajectory of, of history.
0: Yeah, and that's so well said. I mean, wouldn't you agree that if we want that kind of definition of progress, a more cl- inclusive, more expansive understanding of progress, then we almost have to pull back from those borders, take those blinders off, and see the, the bigger story uh, of world history?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the 1619 project is so interesting because the project itself doesn't even make sense without the idea of the nation built into it, right? It, it cannot exist in that way. You could do a, a story about, you know, slavery in, in the early modern world, the modern world, and take this, this view of, of Brazil and, and the United States and the Caribbean, all these places, you know, the British Empire, the French Empire. It's gonna be a very different story, but what Nicole Hannah-Jones talked about in the 1619 Project is specifically how these stories get embedded in our own national, national story. Um, that these things are, are inextricably tied together in many ways. Um, because the narrative of the nation has become so powerful that it, it kind of dominates everything. It dominates our understanding of everything. And I think it is so important, therefore, to, to take that global view and see the kind of broader picture, to see what these things look like from further away. And I think the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea of American progress, is, is something that looks very different from the outside. And so I want to just talk a little bit about what those stories look like from the perspective of Japan. And so I want to talk about a, a particular figure. His name is Akuma Shigenobu. Akuma was uh, one of the founding figures in modern Japan. And he ends up being the prime minister. And he, unlike a lot of his, his contemporaries, is a relatively liberal figure in the sense that he believes in uh, some aspects of democracy. He uh, uh, has his own views on Japanese imperialism, all this sort of, sort of thing. But one of, the, one of the important moments in his life is in the wake of the, the World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. We were talking about this earlier, and I, I realize this is not a story, I think, that, that necessarily is out there that much. There's been a lot of stories about the Treaty of Versailles. But one thing that happens during the negotiations for the treaty is that the Japanese delegation tries to get inserted into the final treaty a statement about racial equality. So they want this embedded in the treaty, that, that racial equality is, is an element of this new world order that people like Woodrow Wilson are trying to construct, uh, what the Japanese delegation probably underestimated was the deep-seated racism of Woodrow Wilson this uh, Guy who ends up being lauded by liberals as this figure of uh, you know, make the world safe for democracy and and internationalism all this stuff was himself uh, One of the most racist American presidents we, we've had and that's that's a deep competition by the way
0: And by, by the way, let me just throw in you know, he was a southerner by birth uh, uh, remembered as a child seeing, you know, soldiers walking through the streets at the end of the Civil War. His father was, a, I think, a Presbyterian minister who once wrote a treatise in defense of slavery.
1: Right. So, th- so yeah. the flip side of that then is that the Japanese want to try to get this racial equality clause thrown in. And it ultimately was rejected because particularly of the efforts of the Australian and American delegations led by, in the American case, Woodrow Wilson. And so for Akuma Shigenobu, who, who has this idea of Japan as this, you know, this emergent nation, they've kind of, in his mind, they've reached this level of great power. They have, you know, proven wrong, this kind of racial view that has been so much a powerful part of Western imperialism in the previous century or so. He comes out of this, I think, really um, affected by, by the fact that he's now realized that it doesn't really matter what Japan does because they will continually continue to be seen as a nation that is inherently unequal when compared to the white nations of the world. And so in 1921, and so, you know, I just wanted to put this in context, 1920s, we, we in American history, it's the roaring 20s, it's the flappers, it's uh, the Charleston, that's, that's what I associate with it, at least, uh, you know, economic development, this new consumerism, there is this, this triumphal story of this post-World War I period, certainly where, where things begin to uh, grow in this new way, American uh, supremacy is, is, I think, been established greater than it had been before because of our new entry into the, wo- into the world system. But this is also the period of the 1920s where uh, the new Ku Klux Klan is emerging, uh, where lynching is probably at its height. Uh, this is the the era of the Immigration Act of 1924, uh, which to the Japanese becomes known as the Japanese Exclusion Act. And, and by the way, the immigra- Immigration Act of 24 is, is borrowed by the Nazis uh, when they establish uh, their own immigration laws, they're basically taking it directly from this 1924 act. And so, again, you get this idea that shifting perspectives is so powerful because that narrative of the Roaring Twenties looks so different when you're seeing it from the perspective of African Americans in this country, for instance, who are suffering under these lynchings, under the, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, this is the period also of the Tulsa Massacre, um, which uh, is this tragic and, and undertold story of American history as well. And the story also looks different from outside. And so that's why I wanted to get to Okuma Shigenobu, because he writes this piece called The Illusion of the White Race. And the whole thing is this screed against racism. And he, he points out over and over again how race is an idea. And it's, it's this powerful idea that has kind of taken over the souls of, of these white nations. and They can't see beyond it. And so he, he, he's making this attempt to critique the idea. Now, I do want to point out that Japan is not blameless. They are themselves an imperialist nation. They are seizing territory in China. Um, I don't want to present Japan as some kind of utopian society that stands up against the racism and imperialism of the West. It's not true. But nevertheless, there is something powerful about hearing what the United States looks like from the outside. And I want to focus on one particular passage here uh, towards the end of this piece where Akuma now turns attention to African Americans. In the United States, he says, "quote The Negroes in America, now numbering more than eleven millions, are not yet eman- emancipated in the true sense of the word. The American law prohibits all invidious discrimination against the Negroes, yet they are subjected to constant persecution by the Americans, whose prejudices against them are too deep rooted to be removed by the mere promulgation of laws. Worst of all, the Negroes in America are frequently lynched, a vindictive method the parallel of which cannot be found in the history of even the barbarians." of the world. And so into this narrative of of progress and uh, economic development and prosperity, Kuma is now thrusting in this different story where instead of representing the height of Western civilization, the height of the civilized world, he's suggesting that in fact, Americans are engaged in this crime certainly against their own populace, which he says cannot be found even amongst the barbarians of the world.
0: Incredible. I, you know, sometimes, you know, if you allow me, I think what part of what you're saying here is that the mirror you look into can't be that same clouded mirror two inches from your nose it, that you have to pull back and gain that bigger perspective sometimes to get an accurate reflection of yourself.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, and you know, continue with that mirror thing you know, there's that thing, even within the mirror, you can, you can see from different perspectives. You can see from different angles, depending on where you are. And the point is not that there's one view of of that mirror that's correct. And one that's incorrect. It's that in many ways, we've got to see all those reflections in all these different ways to get something like a truer picture. So you can see the full scope of of what's going on. And so you're not just accepting this one viewpoint from this one perspective, from this one person, because it's always going to be distorted.
0: Yeah, very, very well said, and I think you'll uh, leap to agree with me uh, when I say that we will make it our absolute duty, and it is a moral duty, to explain at least how we believe you can create that bigger, clearer, truer story here on History Against the Grain.
1: Absolutely, and you're going to take us out with a quote from Nicole Hannah-Jones, so why don't you end end it here?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The last word today goes to Pulitzer Prize winner, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, whose 1619 project beautifully reports from a different mirror, how at every step of the way, every narrative turn of America's history, black people, whether free or enslaved, uh, have risked their lives uh, to claim that most American promise, the promise of freedom from Elizabeth Freeman, who sued her enslaver during the American Revolution to gain her freedom, to those enslaved men and women who risked their lives as fugitives before the Civil War to gain their freedom, to John Lewis and the marchers in Selma who tried to march across a bridge so that they could have freedom. We'll leave it to Ms. Hannah Jones to take us out. More than any other group in this country's history, she writes, we have served generation after generation in an overlooked, but vital role. It is we who have been the perfectors of this democracy.
1: That's beautiful. Thanks for listening guys to History Against the Grain. We will be back next week for more fun and games. See you then.
3: Nobody is innocent It's a sin when you play into ignorance Another one So we were t-